0: Greetings everyone. Thank you so much for tuning in to the latest episode of Ocean in a Drop, where we talk about stories where individuals with really high impact and really successful careers share their journey and give uh, more insights about how to pursue such a career. So today I'm super excited to introduce Subhashish Badra. So Subhashish pursued a BA in economics from St. Stephen's College, following which he was one of the nine candidates who achieved a hundred percentile in CAT in 2011. Contrary to what most of us would do at that score, he proceeded to take up a job at McKinsey immediately after his bachelor's, where he worked worked in sectors such as pharma, steel and banking. He then received an MPhil in economics from Oxford University as a Rhodes Scholar and now is working at Omidyar Network, providing capital to both for-profit and non-profit entrepreneurs who are helping make technology safer and empowering individuals. Uh, working for issues like privacy, artificial intelligence, misinformation, and digital identity in India and Africa. So Subharshish, thank you so much for uh, taking time to come on this podcast. I'm pretty sure that all of our listeners are very excited to hear uh, more about uh, how you've been making different choices in your life.
1: Thanks for inviting me, Mister. excited about this.
0: Yeah. So um, I would just uh, initially want to talk more about your student life. And, uh, you know, a lot of students who are listening to this podcast would like to see uh, themselves in spaces that you are currently existing in. So I would like to talk about more your journey as a student. So um, I've seen one of your YouTube videos where you've mentioned about how affected you are mentally while trying to figure out your professional life because of uh, setting standards, which are really high throughout your career. Now, I can safely assume that with the choices that you've made as a student, you've raised several eyebrows with the unconventional choices that you've made. So one really important thing that I think uh, our listeners would like to know is that what were the guiding principles that drove such decisions and how have they changed over time compared to when you were a student and how it is right now?
1: Sure. Uh, So as a student, I was... uh... I mean, I was always very really studious Was with my books throughout school and high school and all of that, uh, but I wasn't necessarily you know, the topper of the class or anything, probably ranking the top 20% or 10%. Okay. Um, and then the boards happened where I happened to uh, top uh, Delhi and be third all over India. And I think that created a me- media frenzy for two or three days. And then okay. uh, it really affected uh, my mental state for a long time to come, because even as I entered college, everyone kind of viewed me as, hey, he's the topper guy, right? Yeah. uh so it makes you feel differently um but for me as i told you it uh resulted in a lot of mental health issues because right. after that especially that kind of intense media fren- frenzy, exactly. media people fighting for your interviews yeah. and then you realize you'll probably never have that again in your life no matter what you do i mean you have to be really really successful yeah yeah uh, and so that uh in a way troubled me put me kind of into a depression i had to be on medication and therapy and all of that exactly. uh, but at the same time i think it freed me uh, it freed me because it felt like look i've proved what i had to prove uh, and now i can make decisions that i want to make um, and therefore the choices that i made the guiding principle through all of that always was is this something i enjoy myself doing i don't think i've ever taken up a role an opportunity etc where Um, I feel like there's, you know, I'll suffer too much and I, you know, for the sake of the career, I will do it. I have not made those kind of choices because I've always felt that even if you take opportunities, which might not make sense, but because you enjoy them, you do them so well that you excel in them, life will be relatively smooth. So that includes, for example, after the cat, right? Uh, A lot of expectations would be, you go a certain way, but then you kind of go the other way. Uh, At the end of my uh, tenure at McKinsey, I got a job offer from a big private equity firm, which offered me, you know, probably like three, ta- two or three times as much money as I earn today. And they were offering <laughs> me that when I was, uh, when I was uh, barely 20. Yeah. So, but then I said, you know, this is not what I want to do. I don't see myself living that life. And then I went yeah. to, the uh, yeah. so the question I always ask myself is, uh, do I see myself being happy yeah. doing the thing that I'm about to embark on? And that's yeah. served me quite well. Yeah. Yeah. Makes a lot of sense. And a quick shout out to our
0: listeners about uh, uh, Subashi's really great online presence. So he, he posts really good medium articles. Uh, his LinkedIn uh, posts are really insightful and he has a YouTube channel also. So I really recommend everyone to go through all of these and uh, learn more about what he's doing. So um, now uh, as we spoke about different experiences academically that you faced, were there any experiences that were pivotal that guided your principles, uh, changed how you made decisions in the in, in to to pursue a career in the impact space. So, any pivotal experiences to guide you towards the impact?
1: I wouldn't say there was anything kind of that jolted me into getting into the impact space. Uh, I, you know, as most people who study economics in the country always have this dream that you know they'll be a development person of yeah. some yeah the World Bank or something right. Sure. And that was certainly something I had in my mind. Yes. At some point, and for me, McKinsey always was there for kind of a temporary path. Even that McKinsey, I did a lot of projects on the development side of things. Got it. Uh, but when I went to Oxford, then this opportunity in impact investing opened up. And I said, Look, it sounds interesting. You're creating impact, yeah. and market based solutions, and you're probably getting a decent salary while doing that. Yeah, so, I mean, yeah. almost sounds impossible. Can I go and learn more? Okay. So I did an internship at Omidya Network at that point. Okay. But what made me fall in love with the space and the sector was the ethos of the organization. So I wouldn't say as much that I'm in love with impact investing or the impact sector, but I'm certainly in love with the organization that I'm at. And the reason that happened is because um, the culture of the organization being extremely flat, The what the, cult, uh, what the organization stands for, it stands for people having more agency over their lives. And if right. I take this back to my own personal journey, which was about me making my decisions independent of what... You know my parents thought what friends yeah. thought about society thought and i said this is a this, that is something every all of us deserve is more over our lives exactly so that's what drove me into uh impact investing and so i am in impact investing i'm in the impact space because uh i want people to have the same kind of privilege and opportunities to make their own decisions and fail and succeed or whatever but do it on their own merit whenever they yeah. want yeah 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 makes sense and
0: uh, we, we just spoke about uh, how you, you got introduced into the impact investing space at Oxford. So uh, tell me more about how your experience at uh, Oxford was as a Rhodes Scholar and as an
1: MFL student. Yeah, I mean, Oxford has a very different education culture than, than what I experienced in India. Yeah. Um, there were very few classes, probably two to three hours of classes a day. And that two people said our course was among the tougher ones. Yeah. Uh, and you're not infantilized in the sense that if you want to attend classes, you attend them. If you don't, you don't, right? There's no right. attendance system, etc. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> you assignments, you want to complete those assignments, you do those. If you don't want to, you don't do them. Yeah. So I enjoyed that kind of yeah. uh, studying culture. And obviously, clearly, it's a university which has done well. So I presume that culture works. Yeah. It's actually extremely intense, right? The coursework is unlike anything that I had seen in India or experienced in India. It's just a different level. Yeah. But what was more important about Oxford was um, that student life there was essentially politicized uh, in the oh. sense that um, for while I was there, the Roads Must Fall movement was a, ironically at its peak, uh, and a oh. lot of my colleagues who were in Road Scholars were yeah. leading that movement. So that political environment helped open up my mind to issues uh, of the world uh, and i you know debated and grappled with that a lot so i think the kind of person that i went into oxford was very different from the one that came out and primarily that it made me think a lot more about the world around me than i had been doing till then yeah so the experience of oxford was laid back uh, but it was intellectually extremely stimulating and was personally very rich uh, as i told i was a relatively studious guy uh, when yeah. I was in India but when I went to Oxford I kind of let my head down and I was going yeah. to find him multiple times a week and yeah. you know, all that. So I think it's a far more holistic uh, Development. life experience. It's not an educational experience. Yeah. Yeah. Makes
0: a lot of sense. So uh, I love that you drew the parallels between uh, Indian education and uh, uh, you know your education at Oxford and this was something I was very curious when I came across your profile and as I researched more about you so as a student who was pursuing a non-BBA background at the undergrad level, you secured rank one in CAT exams. Now, uh, tell me more about how intense that preparation period was and how what was your decision to not pursue an MBA? And currently with the job description that you have right now, do you think an MBA would have suited you better or would have helped you better with your current role?
1: Sure. So here's a funny incident uh, about... For about two or three weeks before the actual CAT exam, I used to come to classes late. I used to be sleepy throughout the day and people thought, oh my God, this guy's really working hard and preparing for CAT. But actually what I was doing was I was staying up to three or four every night playing Age of Empires with my <laughs> The reason was, our college had just got land, uh, So, oh, okay. <laughs> first time we could actually play these kind of multiplayer games, games. Uh, at reasonable convenience. So I forgot about my CAT prep uh, yeah. three or four weeks back. I don't recommend it, but it certainly... Yeah. Happened I had the McKinsey job so I knew there was a fallback option. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, so the point I'm making, however, through the story is cat is not a game of intense preparation. okay. It's it. a game of consistent preparation. So I started a year and a half possibly before the actual exam. Uh, I went to these classes uh, probably two or three times a week spent an hour, two hours there. Even the classes I chose, you know i went to the more traditional bigger names but the one i settled on was a smaller group because i really liked the professors there they were friends after classes we would go out and you know have chole bature and all of that yeah. it was a very good um, friendly atmosphere that helped me do well so that was where it started and you know putting in maybe I don't know, 10, 15 hours a week, right? Consistently yeah. over that one and a half years uh, yeah. was very important. And then you have to kind of keep your mind clear. So at one point, I was not scoring as well in the mock cats, uh, especially of the verbal section. At some point, my professor came and said, look, don't worry about it. I think you're on the right path. Just keep keep going. Yeah. So that's what cat prep would to me looks like and the same I would say is true for GMAT or anything else that's an aptitude test right where you're not being tested on knowledge where you're being tested on like verbal or quantitative aptitude Uh, that's important and you know some things you can never overcome like I've always been bad with numbers so even while I scored 100 percentile in cat I did not score 100 percentile in my quant section okay okay (laughs) some things you can't uh, you know change so no need to worry about that. Now the decision to not go to an IM was because at that point, I'd already been in college for three years, right? And I said, if I go to another college for two years, do I see myself enjoying that, right? Do I see yeah. myself enjoying the same process of exams, classes, attending, yeah. curricula, yeah. etc.? Maybe. <laughs> Maybe, and eventually, I did go to Oxford, right? But right. I said, not at this point. At this point, I need a break. I want to try something new. It'll be exciting and interesting to get your own money, manage your own life, etc. So yeah, the decision was pure was not based on any cost benefit analysis it was purely based on the fact that i just felt i wouldn't enjoy it
0: right right makes sense and uh, just to talk about how investing uh, there's a lot of traditional jobs uh, stemming from mba for investing and uh, do you see an mba as a valuable addition for someone who's trying to pursue investing and very specifically impact investing
1: yeah, at, at two levels. Firstly, because you know that's the expectation in the market that people are yeah. doing investing. If you've done an MBA from a good school, either in India or abroad, there's a certain advantage you have. So I think yeah. practically it makes sense. Um, at a conceptual level and in a day-to-day level, it makes sense because at the end of the day, this is a numbers-based business. Right? You're supposed right. to put money in, get money out. So you need yeah. to be comfortable with numbers. You need to be comfortable with making financial models and all of that kind of stuff. So that's the training that an MBA gives you. Uh, it gives you probably much better than many other degrees, and I think that's valuable. Uh, right. I think MBA also forces you, especially the way these programs are run, to really network with people, collaborate with people, get to know them, etc. Those are again skills that are useful for a investing role because you're constantly out there, right? right. right. Collaborate right. with lots of people, right? So while I didn't take that path, I do believe that an MBA or a ro- or a you know, degree like that would be quite valuable for a job in investing. But at the end of the day, especially in early stage investing, the most important thing is intuition and risk risk appetite, right? Yeah, yeah. The most. yeah, got it. Uh,
0: so um, I really love what you're doing right now. And we just had a brief talk about how Omidyar is like a really good fit to who you are as a person. And uh, your Instagram bio says that, you know, I can't believe I found my dream job already. And I don't think there are a lot of uh, individuals in their late 20s who are able to say that at this point. So uh, tell me more about what Omidyar Network does and what your role as a principal entails.
1: So, Omidyar Network India is a philanthropic investments firm which backs entrepreneurs, both for profit and non profit, who create a mean- or who help create a meaningful life for every Indian. Um, so, we've been in India for about 11 years now, we invest in six sectors that include financial inclusion, education, property rights, governance, emerging technologies, and digital society. And within each of these six sectors, we have a mix of for-profit and non-profit tools we use. So, we're trying to create social impact and we believe social impact can come from any kind of entrepreneur. Uh, it doesn't need to be just for-profit or just oh, not for-profit, yeah. so we have this dual checkbook model to do that. Yeah. And we've deployed about $350 million in India and since we've oh. been here and we intend to deploy a similar number over the next five years. Yeah. So that's what the organization as a whole does. What is the day-to-day job? Uh, is honestly, just to look for entrepreneurs, to back them and to be able to support them. So as a very typical VC construct, which is you spend probably 30 to 40% of your time looking out for opportunities, both for profit and not for profit that you can invest in. Uh, You take them through an investment process, you prepare the memos, there's an investment committee, you try to convince the investment committee, etc. That's that's 40% 40 of the job. 30 to 40% of the job is once you're done investing, that's when your real job starts, which is actually trying take both these nonprofit and for-profit things to success. Uh, You have to be a good thought partner to the entrepreneur. You have to help the business in meaningful ways and fundraising, communications, governance, whatever they need. And then of course, like in any other job, there's a 10 to 20% admin, which is like internal strategy and and stuff. So that's what on a day-to-day basis the role looks like. Got it. Got it. Sounds
0: sounds really exciting. And uh, if you don't mind, I would love to hear more about your work over the years. Uh, can you illustrate on some of the projects related to digital identity in India and Africa?
1: Sure, happy to do that. Uh, the project which uh, defined my career uh, and my me in this profession pretty early on was a project called State of Aadhaar. Uh, oh. So when Aadhaar was, the whole debate was at its peak in probably three or four years back, uh, there were, government would say, look, these are all the savings we've got, etc. Cetera, et cetera, and this is why Aadhaar is great. And then the critics would say, look, people are dying because they're not getting food rations. Yeah. You know, Getting denied services, etc. In fact, the, both the worlds are far apart because there was no data. Sure, there mm-hmm. were questions of people dying, but if or getting denied their ration, but if one percent get denied ration versus thirty percent, it's very different consequences on how you solve it. Right. So we decided to fund the State of Aadhaar as an effort to bring data into this discussion. So, in the last iteration of the report was a large survey of about one hundred and sixty-seven thousand households in India. Oh. And that report called out nuances which were not otherwise present in the discourse. So, for example, um, the fact that third gender and homeless people are disproportionately more likely to be excluded from Aadhaar was not there. Right. The fact that non-Aadhaar related reasons for exclusion were much higher. Um, yeah. So this on the non-profit side, from a project grant, this was one of the things that was very exciting. Got on it. the for-profit side, I've invested in a bunch couple of uh, companies which work on privacy tech. Um, in the US. So for example, one of the companies I invested in was one called Learning Machine. So what Learning Machine does, it goes and sells itself to universities and other big governments, uh, and it it issues credentials, which could be your diploma, which could be your driver's license, your health record, et cetera, directly to the individual with a hash of it stored on the blockchain. So So that there's no centralized repository and there's a direct convenience that the individual can share their records digitally and it's verifiable on the blockchain. Uh, so uh, that's what the business was. The business did well. It was acquired eventually by another larger business. So on the for-profit side, that was one of the privacy tech companies that I invested in. And apart from that, there's a portfolio of you know ten to fifteen organizations that our work on digital society is supporting. Many of them are think tanks that do policy research. Many of them are direct consumer advocacy work. So for example, recently. We launched a social media campaign on data privacy. Uh, we reached about fifty million people through that. Uh, we oh. launched a radio show which reached about twenty-six million people. It wow. increased the privacy consciousness by eleven percent. So yeah. it's an interesting job that you kind of get to do. In the same day, you get to do for profit. You get to do policy research. Yeah. Policy so this is a very wide gamut of activities. Yeah. Yeah.
0: So um, really exciting to see such large opportunities that are a wide range of opportunities that are provided to people who are working at Omidyar. And uh, I think think we have listeners who are both students and who are people who are impact oriented and in that space. And I'm pretty sure that a lot of them are looking forward to working in such an ecosystem that Omidyar provides. So uh, can you tell me more about what does Omidyar look for in potential candidates and how does one build the necessary skill sets and experiences to work in that ecosystem?
1: look for us as an organization there is no you know textbook good candidate because yeah. we <laughs> even know that good candidates will come from different places so if you look right. at people who are currently associates uh, on our team they come from journalism they come from management consulting they come from i banking they come from development consulting they, came, yeah. they come from operations in factories right so yeah. a very wide gamut of background so because impact investing in particular is such a narrow field right yeah. Yeah few firms who do it they do there's no kind of checkbox that you can say you know if i for example CFA, right. i have a better chance or if i do an mba I have yeah. a better. what we're looking for is people who show a high degree of competence no matter what they did uh, who show a certain amount of motivation to go out and get things done because this is a very ambiguous job uh, you That's need to job. you know you're dealing with ambiguity all the time you're dealing yeah. with dealing with failure day in day out yeah. so people who see show that they have worked in those kind of situations are people we really like people who care about the issues that we work on because if you don't care about an issue it's very difficult for you to do well on that yeah Um, and finally as i said from a functional perspective the only thing that's really important is comfort with numbers yeah Uh, you don't don't need to know how to develop the world's most complex model but numbers shouldn't scare you because otherwise it becomes quite challenging
0: yeah yeah (laughs) makes sense and uh uh, i really loved your thought process when uh in one of your youtube videos and Prior to what you said during your MBA preparation about how uh, sacrifice doesn't drive success. It's about how happiness drives success. Now, um, I would love to know that relatability between happiness, personal responsibility, and your role at Omidyar and how that uh, works together.
1: Right. So, Look, the, the funny thing was when I was, uh, I started my Omidyar journey as an intern in the London office doing uh, in the best part of the strategy team. Uh, one of my colleagues there, I was catching up with him one-on-one and he, he was in his probably late 30s, early 40s, and he said, look, do anything but don't get into Omidyar right away. So <laughs> He said, look, you need to go out and experience the quote unquote real world before you yeah. get into the impact space and all of yeah. that. And again, for me, the decision was, uh, is this something I see myself enjoying? Uh, right. And that's, that's when I said, look, I don't need to explore the world because I see myself enjoying this and maybe someday, oh, no, Nishjid, I might come to regret this decision, right? but right now <laughs> I made it five years back. Um, so for me, therefore... Uh, that Omidyar Network India has provided me the platform to be able to shape my work in the direction that most excites me. So the work that I began within 2016 is very different from the work that I'm doing today in the thematic right. areas, in right. uh, the kind of tools I'm doing. And uh, Omidyar Network India has always been very supportive of me in that entire journey. Uh, which is to say, look, go out and do what you like to do. Obviously, there's an accountability that you have to do it well. Definitely, uh, but to that very question like, do, do i enjoy what i'm doing am i uh, you know it, it doesn't feel like a sacrifice you know i wake up on monday excited that i want to you know, get yeah something to uh, and that i think has really helped me in this role got it
0: got it sounds good and you know uh, i think uh, more companies the more companies we have that adopt this work culture where they give the freedom and there's a level of accountability. I think everyone would be much happier in their jobs.
1: I it's easier to do in a 30, 35 member organization. I can see yeah. when you go to like 30,000 or 3 lakh. But... Yeah.
0: <laughs> All right. So uh, just talking about a few tips that uh, uh, our listeners would love to hear from you. right? So I would love to get your insights about... Uh, in the digital space uh, specifically, about how making technology safer and empowering individuals is a recurring narrative that you stand by. And I know that you've learned a lot from people and data and as you've delved deeper into the system. Now, uh, how has your view changed from 10 years back uh, before encountering so much of data and being part of these discourses at Oxford and uh, working at Omidyar and looking at how like uh, data represents the realities?
1: Yeah, look for me the data and technology is an instrument, right? The bigger question for me is one around individuals having rights and ownership over their uh, their lives. So for example would any of us be comfortable if there's a stalker who's standing outside or inside our room 24-7 watching us? Yeah. What be, right? That's what yeah. we expect from the physical world. The Correct. question is in the digital world that doesn't happen today right? because we are right. constantly under surveillance either right. by governments of different kinds or by the big tech companies. companies, you know, there's CCTV cameras on the road everywhere, there's every app, left, right and center, collects your exact location data, even if they don't yeah. So yeah. I've always placed my work on privacy, not in some abstract you know, you, you want to give this number or you want to give that number or not yeah. and all of that. But it's this question of, are we under control? Of our lives and how that plays out so that's the big transformation that happened for me right because when i came when i got out of stephens there was a lot more about uh, you know education sanitation healthcare what one might call the foundational needs of a good life
0: right right
1: but then i realized that that is very very important and non-negotiable but beyond yeah. that if you really want to have a good life you need to have control and agency and all of that and that's yeah. why i enjoy this work if someone tells me look you, you have to work on other aspects of individual agency i'll probably be equally happy Right, uh, right, right, But that's where the, uh, that's where I landed. And therefore, for me also over the you know, as I'm I'm also learning more. There's so much to learn, right? In terms of the apps that you can download, in terms of right. chances you can take. Right. Uh, so all of that has been a journey. I've certainly in my personal life made a lot of changes, switching over to Signal, uh, downloading this app called Dusra, which allows you to have a second phone number and reduce spam. And you know, you keep right. coming up to these things day in day. Yeah, out. Yeah. There's a lot out there. Uh, Correct. so so that's that's the journey.
0: Yeah, <laughs> and uh, uh, primarily uh, I I come from NITK, which is an engineering college in India, and I would love to know how uh, engineering students, uh, CS and IT students in particular, computer science students have a role beyond software development. Uh, what would you say about you know ethics and policy and product in that whole uh, e- ecosystem of computer science?
1: Yeah, look, to be honest, us economists, lawyers, humanities, people need it. But we can, we can say whatever we want to say at the end of the day, we are not the ones building technology. And we don't have to... Yeah, yeah, exactly. In this space, the most influential people are the technologists. Because whenever you go and speak to government or a corporation, you know, you have to give them something in return. And that return is to build the technology for them. Look, at exactly. the end of the day, India is seen as a leader in tech policy or technology more generally, because we built things like Aadhaar, UPI, et cetera, and we scaled it in a way no country did. And who oh. did it? Engineers did it, right? Exactly. So I genuinely think there's a very important role for engineers in this entire space. Right. Obviously, they, I feel like there's a lot that engineers will learn by talking to lawyers and economists and sociologists, etc., and vice versa. Right. Uh, so all of them have their roles. Uh, and uh, in this space, however, I have noticed that there haven't been as many people with an engineering background, uh, which, exactly. is, which is problematic, right? Because if you don't understand the technology as well enough, how, what basis do you comment on? Yeah. So we launched a fellowship last year, uh, which is called the Young Leaders in Tech Policy Fellowship, oh. which takes people who have an engineering background and at least two years of work experience, and we place oh. them at either think tanks or nonprofits which are building technology. So yeah. last year we ran the first cohort, there were five uh, people who were selected, uh, they have been placed at different think tanks and they're contributing and learning in different ways. So I think, again, engineers have a very important role to play. Uh, yeah. I think yeah. this is a space they probably don't know as well, and therefore this fellowship, which is being anchored by the University of Chicago is uh, an important one in just making the journey happen. Yeah, that's that's really exciting. And I, I'm, I'm
0: pretty sure that a lot of students from our college would be looking forward to belong to that ecosystem in the near future. And uh, now, talking about students and their responsibilities, uh, do you think that individual student impact is significant? And uh, how do you think teenagers and young adults can step into the space and identify social impact in the right context? As you told, you know, it's a very ambiguous uh, uh, space. And how do you navigate in this space?
1: Yeah, you know, I would say go out and experiment. Uh, right, And don't, um, don't do, put too much pressure on yourself to be impactful at scale from day one. Yeah. So like yeah. Look, yeah. Back at, look back at what were the first few things of uh, social impact that I did. It was, you know, we had this system of evening classes where we taught underprivileged kids in college. I joined that. Right? Yeah. One might argue, look, you just affected one person. It's, you know, yeah. The scale you had. Yeah. Uh, there was times when we would like, go, you know, the cleanliness drives and they'll take you, uh, they'll take you to like a monument and along with other students, you'll we'll clean that up. One might ask, what's the point next? Day it'll be as dirty as ever. Yeah. <laughs> we, uh, as part of our finance society, we launched a financial literacy campaign where we kind of educated people about our karamcharis of the college about financial products and financial. Yeah but so some might argue look, the problem there is they don't have enough money it's not that they can't buy bank accounts and you don't have enough money to buy it. so yeah. if i look back and say all of these things you know probably didn't create a, uh, uh, didn't create benefits for people in the long run or create impact for them but i think it's important as a student not to put too much pressure on yourself go out and experiment yeah. a few things see what you enjoy yeah uh, and depending on what you enjoy then you can take a call on what works for you what doesn't Definitely. Uh, so for example, I had an internship with uh, Panthan Microfinance, so I did kind of 17 field visits and surveys and all of that, oh. uh, extremely physically grueling. There were days when I cycled like 50 kilometers, 20 kilometers, etc. Oh, right? In the in summer sun in in rural West Bengal, it was crazy, right? Yeah. Uh, and I think there are many people who will do well and really enjoy that kind of role, but it wasn't yeah. for me. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. People who like the grassroots, like being around people, like meeting people, they would really enjoy that kind of role. Exactly. So, what I tell students is go out and start experimenting with students. Yeah. Don't put pressure on yourself to find a perfect social impact journey on day one. Correct, correct. Yeah.
0: And I, I relate so much to what you're saying because uh, every time I've seen students being involved in impact, uh, I think it's, it might be from their parents, it might be from the faculty. They dismiss it outright by saying, you know, what you're doing is not impactful, right? It's very relevant. What you're doing is a drop in an ocean, right? It does not make a difference. But these experiences lead up to choices that you make eventually. And that's the whole point of creating this podcast where we're. Uh, trying to say you're not a drop in an ocean, you're an entire ocean in a drop. So, yeah.
1: absolutely. Uh,
0: and uh, finally, I would like to talk about, you know, your decade of experiences, right? Your achievements and the rock bottoms that you've hit. What advice would you give to your 20-year-old self? Uh, was there something that you wish you did differently?
1: I wish I had a lot more fun. <laughs> <laughs> When when age was on my side, it's a bit difficult yeah. to really catch up later. Yeah, in life. <laughs> but I think there's obviously all most people would probably prefer to be serious in their academic and professional lives because they want right. to get somewhere, and I think that's really important. If you don't have money and if you don't have financial security, life's probably going to be tough.
0: Definitely. But
1: at the same time, you know, you you only live once; those years will never come back. So, yeah. advice I would have given to the Uh, 20 year old me was to probably calm down a little bit and go yeah (laughs) enjoy enjoy the world more and be like you know things will work themselves out don't take stress about every internship you didn't get or every job you got. (laughs) You just keep got to keep moving along consistently and things will happen
0: makes sense makes a lot of sense (laughs) and uh, finally right uh, I I really believe that uh, books are a really good way to put forth ideas and uh, i would like to know if there are any books that have significantly impacted your worldview that our listeners should also read and uh, get a few insights about this space
1: not really in the sense the kind of books i read are typically non-fiction uh, educational stuff um, for me uh, yeah those those are the kind of books i read in terms of life-changing books again nothing serious i what i tried to do was dabble again in a bunch of things and then i realized yeah. Fiction is yeah. not for me. I just don't find it interesting. <laughs> uh, people need to do what uh, what works for them. What has been most useful for me is almost to observe and learn from people around me, right? And so those are my books. Yeah, uh, yeah. Uh, so, <laughs> Uh, one of the bosses I had at McKinsey had a deep impact on me. gave me a lot more confidence and I think that's really helped me. Uh, my first boss at Omidyar I think has enabled me in so many ways that I can't see myself being where I am without yeah. the support. my current bosses at Omidyar. So I look at these people, I see what's the best in them, right? And what can I imbibe? Makes sense. You know? so that's what I encourage people to do, right? Look yeah. at for your real-life heroes and and, heroes, and they're never going to be perfect. Yeah. Don't be objective about them, but at the same time, yeah. imbibe what's best in them makes sense makes a lot of sense uh, so uh,
0: thank you so much for coming on this call we've had such a great conversation talking about such wide variety of topics from your student life from the different choices that you made during your student life and finally the work that you uh, do at omidyar currently uh, again i would strongly recommend every listener to uh, search for subhashish's blog on medium and uh, youtube channel and finally his linkedin so thank you so much again for making this podcast happen uh, uh, we we'll look forward to talking to you once more if time permits. <laughs> Thanks so much for having me, Mr. Good luck. All Bye. right.